welcome everyone. Say a prayer and get moving tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time once again to gather. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to be here for the past um, two weeks and tonight discussing the topic of finances with the church family. Uh, please bless this time. Uh, please help whatever I say to be uh, useful and from you and uh, speak to each person individually as, as you would have it. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, there are quite a few people here tonight, and we have not had this many. <laughs> I think there are people that have missed the first couple of weeks or just the first week. So, I'm going to, I'll do a quick review of some of the, the bullet points of what we touched on the first couple of weeks. Um, the first week, I really focused on our heart when it comes to money, uh, money management. Um, we talked about our culture and how it emphasizes money, um, that uh, there's kind of the anti-culture that says money is evil, but in reality, money is neutral. It's neither good nor evil. Um, you know, money can lead, the, the love of money can lead to all types of sin, but money in and of itself is not evil. Uh, we covered that all wealth or lack of wealth is from God. We talked about guarding our hearts and minds when it comes to money. We talked about the impact finances have on a marriage and how to have enjoy the fullness of marriage as you share finances with your spouse. We, last week, we talked about being a good steward, uh, a steward, steward. We talked about being diligent in our work, putting together a budget and planning and seeking understanding of our own finances in our home. We talked about the traits of a good steward, which are you know, being a hard worker, not chasing money, being trustworthy, wise, generous, and grateful to God for everything that we have. And then I dipped into uh, building a budget and what that means and, and planning for the future. And obviously, as I said last week, budgeting starts with tithing and then flows from there. So as you can see, this week I've, I've uh, <laughs> labeled this that you, you, uh, you pay, you save, and then you die, because that's kind of what happens with our finances in the grand scheme of things. So I say that because, teens, I'll get into this shortly with you and address you guys specifically, but most marriages start out in debt. Most Young people go to college, start out in debt. Most lives start in debt. Okay? So, to start off the conversation about debt, I'm going to get into debunking some of the things that are kind of thrown out there in the Christianese language um, that people attribute to the Bible, but the Bible doesn't actually say. So, first, when it comes to debt, it does not say it's a sin to borrow money. There, there are a lot of people that say, well, it's against the Bible to borrow money. Not accurate. Uh, oftentimes when discussing that with people, they'll point to Romans 13.8 where it says, owe no one anything. And they kind of stop there with that verse. They say, owe no one anything. And the rest of the verse says, except love to each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Romans 13.8 is addressing relationships with each other. It's not addressing simply your financial status and owing somebody money. 
So you can, you can push it there and look for things that are, are not necessarily there. And I think it's a good principle to not owe money to anyone, but that's not what that verse is about. So using that purely in a financial sense is inaccurate. Bible also does not say, since we're going to talk about, you know, debunking the fact that the Bible says not to borrow, we're also going to say the Bible certainly doesn't condone it as wise to borrow money, okay? There are times borrowing makes sense. Um, we've just come through a period of time where interest rates have been at ridiculous lows. Um, you can get mortgages or you could get mortgages for, you know, 2%. Um, and so, and the markets themselves were in double digit territory. So you're borrowing at 2% and earning 10%. Obviously that can be a wise financial decision to do, but we're moving into a world now where the average 30 year mortgage rate right now is 7.6%, 7.06% for a 30 year. Um, and the markets are negative. It's pretty foolish to take out <laughs> <laughs> that kind of debt at this point. So like many principles with the Bible, you have to use wisdom, discretion when making decisions. Um, some of the things I've seen people do over the years that are just foolishness that I won't have part of, um, that I would ask them to go to somebody else. Um, Leveraging accounts and investing on margin. People, people don't necessarily think about this. People don't do it as much as they used to, but there was a long time period where people would invest on margin. Margin is basically saying, I have all these stocks. The company's going to double the size of my account fictitionally and allow me to invest double the amount I actually have. If you lose your money, you may end up owing what was actually a, an account that you had because you decided to borrow and try to get a, a quicker return, faster return, more bang for your buck. Um, and again, I'm not going to go deeply into some of these things, but there's something called options investing. Options are very intricate um, investing <laughs> that most people in my industry don't understand. And if you don't understand it, you can leave yourself out there to dry and, and you can be on the hook to buy a worthless stock and have to pay people a price that's a ridiculous price. So I'm, I'm putting these things out there because you guys may not come across these on a day-to-day -day basis, but I do, and people do really foolish things when it comes to money and trying to get a better return. Um, there are all kinds of advertisements out there for ways to leverage your home to bulk up your investment account so that you can invest the equity that's in your home. People lose their homes because they want to use that money to increase their returns. So there is foolish debt to take on, but we are in a culture where it's almost impossible to live your life without having some sort of debt. Um, most people cannot buy a house <laughs> cash, and if you wait until you buy a, a house cash, you might as well give the, kids the money to your kids because <laughs> you're going to be too old to take care of a house. That's most people's situation in reality. Um, so another thing that the Bible does not say about debt is that you can take on debt and God's just going to bail you out. So do you remember a few years ago where the banks were too big to fail? <laughs> the government came to their aid. All these banks were failing. They did not have the money they needed to pay their responsibilities. And the government pumped 
money into the banks to keep them afloat when they were negative balances. Um, this happened to the banks, insurance companies, you know, multitude of companies. I think sometimes Christians will take that approach that God's going to take care of everything. Because Philippians 4.19 says, um, my God will supply every need according to his... My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And they'll take that and ruin it <laughs> and take that as, a, well, I can do what I want financially and God's going to take care of it because he always takes care of me. That's not, that's not what it is. Um, we know from other sin in our lives that when we make poor decisions, when we sin, we may be forgiven but we still deal with the consequences of that sin, oftentimes for the rest of our lives, okay? Um, another thing I've heard people say is that it's a sin to loan money um, because there, there is scripture about um, bad lending to, to brothers and sisters and family and, and trying to take advantage of those in need. So there are many warnings against unfair lending to others or borrowing from others, but it doesn't say that it's wrong, inherently wrong. Uh, so if someone comes to you for a loan and you agree to give that loan, maybe in your own mind you need to view that as a gift rather than a loan. Because if you go with the thought that it's a loan and you're going to get it back, you may be disappointed and it may destroy that relationship. Um, you know, I have, uh, you know, I'm going to give you two different situations I've had with clients that they have learned, loaned money to family and it's worked out really well. Okay. Just, just to kind of show you that it's, it's not wrong to do this. Um, I have some clients who had three homes. They had their primary home and two investment properties and one of their child couldn't get a loan from the bank um, because of their means at that point. So what the parents did was they had an attorney drop the contract, they sold the home to their kids, and they held the mortgage, which basically means the kids didn't have to put any money down. They could buy this house. They were basically doing a lease to own with their parents. And the parents went into it with the mindset of, we're putting our kids into a better position. We're helping them put a roof over their heads for their kids. But we've held this property for all this time, so if they end up defaulting on the loan, we just still own the property and we'll, you know, we'll deal with that with the kids, but it, it, we maintain control of the property until it's paid off. That's not a bad thing. They're helping their kids. They've got some protection legally for themselves where they still own the home. Um, that's not a bad loan to give somebody. I also have clients who have, you know, aged into another vehicle, if you will, purchased new vehicles and, and given an old one to their kids and there's a value in that and the kids <laughs> I'll go back um, 24 years um, I think I was 19 I insisted to my dad that I needed a vehicle and uh, he bought me you know a beater that I could use and you know I insisted that I was able to pay it and would pay it and could never pay it um, it didn't ruin the relationship with my dad because he knew I couldn't pay it. <laughs> but he also did realize that, you know, I needed a car at that point. So he, 
presented it to me as a loan and something I would pay on, but in his mind, he already knew. And when I went to him years later and said, Dad, I feel like I should square this up after all these years, he said, I never expected you to pay that. I knew you would never be able to pay it. So, <laughs> so you know, those are things we do for kids and, and family and people that we love and trust. It, it doesn't mean loaning is bad in all scenarios. Um, so what does the Bible actually say about debt? First and foremost, Psalm 37, 21, the wicked borrow but does not pay back. It is, scripture says, it is wicked to not repay debts. Our culture is debt heavy. We have this beautiful system where people rack up more and more debt for whatever they want. They buy cars, they buy homes, they rack up credit cards for knickknacks and paddywhacks and everything else. Um, <laughs> and we Americans, whether we like to um, admit it or not, we always have this safety valve in the back of our heads called bankruptcy. Our culture has this safety valve for racking up debt that you can turn and say, I declare bankruptcy, and your debt is washed away. <laughs> um, not all of it, but there, the large chunk of your debt can just be washed away. But if we find ourselves in those positions for whatever reason, because there are unfortunate circumstances where people just get so burdened by life, they've lost jobs, they can't make it through, we really need to carefully consider the effects of bankruptcy. Um, so wherever we can, we need to repay what we owe. Um, and that doesn't mean take the easy way. When I say wherever we can, that doesn't mean if it's easy, re repay what we can. That means wherever we can, scripture says, us, says it is wicked for us not to repay. And then in a worldly sense, bankruptcy has this lasting effect on your credit the interest rate you can get on loans for things that you actually do need, like a home. And I'll share a story, an employability story. Um, I had a rep that was on what was called heightened supervision, which meant I had to review all his bank accounts, review his credit statements multiple times a year to make sure he was doing what he was supposed to do because he had defaulted on some medical loans years before. And uh, so they went to collections, he didn't pay them, they defaulted and were wiped out. But it was forever on his record that he had this credit issue in the past. And over time, I noticed some interesting things he was doing with client accounts, um, brought it to the attention of my higher-ups. The rep could not give a good explanation, really, for why he was doing those things with the client. And... I want to be very clear, what he was doing was not illegal. It was just kind of questionable. Um, but because he was doing kind of questionable things and he had a credit history, we let him go. We got rid of him from the firm. And there are a lot of companies and a lot of industries that, that they pull the credit, they look at those things, and teenagers, I'm talking to you particularly because at some point you may make a stupid financial decision and it will be on your record even, even if you don't realize it. And when you go to try to get employment later, that could have a damaging impact on your employability. Scripture also says it is foolish to co-sign for a stranger. Proverbs 11:15. whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer. 
but whoever refuses to shake hands and pledge is safe. Again, I want to clarify, co-signing in and of itself is not always sinful, okay? There are times you may do something for a child or a family member or somebody you, you trust, but when you do that, you are putting a relationship on the line in some way, shape, or form that you may not want to put on the line or you should not put on the line because there is this... <laughs> unbreakable bond between your finances and your relationships so when you your finances are wrapped into a personal relationship it can it can go perfectly fine it can go really badly so you have to understand who you are signing with what they are doing why they are doing it and why you are helping them okay so there is a time and a place where this could be the right thing, um, but you have to use prudence when deciding who you may loan to and when. And we have to have a good understanding of why. And then finally, always realize that when you co-sign, whether it's a child going to college or, or you know, a brother and sister doing something, um, if they cannot pay that loan, You've co-signed. It's on you. So you may be um, saddled with a financial debt that you never wanted to take, and that can be dangerous. All right, the next thing with debts, we should not assume the future. So I say that, and I'm going to use James 4, 13, and 15 for that. So James 4, 13 through 15, then I'll explain what I'm talking about. It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I am using this scripture not because I think it is necessarily about finances, but it is about a principle. And when I apply that principle to finances, I, I boil it down to the people who want instant gratification to purchase something, so they go into debt to do that, thinking that I'm going to buy it now because I'm going to have this money come in later. People get in trouble with that, very significant trouble, because they'll take on a debt that they really can't afford right now because they're going to get a raise or they're going to have a second income or, you know, insert words here. <laughs> People will take on debt that they should not because they want something and they don't want to wait for the right time or place. So do not assume that something is going to happen in the future that you don't know if it's going to happen. And finally, we have to be careful that we are not denying God's power by borrowing. So what do I mean by that? Philippians 4.19, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I know I used that verse already. When we find ourselves in a position where we are considering borrowing, we need to ask a few things. Do I need this? Do I need this right now? 
how will my life change if I take on this debt, but I have this whatever it is I'm wanting to buy? And then we have to start asking ourselves, if we don't, if we don't take that step and add that debt, does God have a plan in this? Is God teaching me patience? Is he teaching me contentment? Can we wait for whatever this is? Will we actually be better off in the long run if we wait? Um, and I will tell you, for me, one, two, three, four, five different questions, the answer is going to be yes every time. <laughs> That's me personally. I get things done. Patience is not my strong suit. I see a task at hand, I get the task done. I see something I want to accomplish, I get that accomplished. I don't like to wait. And God has used finances in many ways through my life to teach me patience, contentment, and a whole list of other, <laughs> of other things, okay? So really consider those things. Finally, I think the most pointed scripture is Proverbs 22.7 when it comes to debt. It says, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. I mean, I know it's the old thing in our society, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And no, the, sometimes the poor put themselves there and the, the rich are just capitalizing on what the people do. Um, but when we borrow money, we are the slave of somebody else. When, when... So you'll see these big companies declare Chapter 11 or some other bankruptcy to restructure finances. When a company is, goes belly up and it's liquidated, and I'm, I'm telling you this because this is what a happens with a company and we can apply this to us personally. When a company goes belly up, they have outstanding, oftentimes have outstanding bonds, they have outstanding stocks, and bonds are technically a debt instrument, which means somebody loaned them money in return for an interest payment being made to those people. So when a company goes up, the bondholders are the first to get paid off. They liquidate all the assets, the bondholders get paid off. If there's any money left, then the stockholders who are technically owners of the company may get something, but more often than not, do not. So when you own the debt, when somebody else owes you, you're in a very powerful position but when you owe debt to somebody else, you're in a very weak position and you may not get repaid or you may not be able to pay it. Um, so I'm going to go into a very short little thing here because I was asked specifically to address uh, debt when it comes to teenagers moving into adulthood. And so I want to give you a really functional look uh, of how debt works, okay? You guys with me back there? Okay. So, if you go to college, most people take school loans. Most people. So if you can find a way not to take school loans, do it. It may not be the cool way to go to school. It may not be the, your ideal way. You may say, you may do what I did and say, well, I'm going to go five hours away because I want to be away from my parents. I don't care if it costs this much money. Okay, so take it from a 44-year-old, almost 44-year-old that still has school loans that he's paying off. That's not unusual. 
okay? One in seven Americans have student debt. The average student loan debt is $37,667. These are numbers as of February. Listen to this. 2.5 million Americans over the age of 60 are still paying school loans. 2.5 million Americans over the age of 60 are still paying school loans. The majority of borrows take over 20 years to pay off school loans. So, you want to talk about that average college debt. Teenage, teenage boys back there, I'm talking to you. The average student debt, the average debt when you get out of college is 37667 The average interest rate on school loans right now is 4.99%. So on a 10-year note, that 4.99% on that balance is $400 a month. You're going to get out of college and have the lowest income you will ever have and the most debt you will ever have, and somehow you're supposed to marry that together and make life work. So understand that if you go to college normally, you're going to have $400 a month payment kind of baseline starting. Okay? So what do people do? They say, well, I'm going to take the graduated repayment plan because it's cheaper now and I can afford it better. Okay. So the same amount borrowed, you extend it out to 20 years. That monthly payment is now $270 a month. Great. I'm saving myself $120. But here's, here's what gets really crazy. If you left it at a 10-year, the amount of interest you would have paid was $10,252, which is 27% of the original balance, okay? You extend it out to 20 years, now you're paying a total of $64,000, so $27,000 in interest on what was originally a $37,000 loan. Almost the same amount. So. I'm preaching to my own son and others that I went away to college. I'm still saddled with some college debt. It's almost done, thank goodness, but I'm still saddled with it, okay? You make stupid decisions like I did? Learn from me, <laughs> okay? So the next things for you younger guys and college-age ladies Mortgage and car payments. And I know I'm, I'm not um, specifically referencing scripture with this, but I'm trying to give you a real-life look at how these things work and impact you. Okay? So when you eventually go to get a mortgage or a car payment, shorter duration typically equates to a lower interest rate. So if you do a 30-year mortgage, you're going to have a higher interest rate than, you, than the exact same house at a 15-year mortgage. Okay? So right now, the current average 30-year mortgage rate is 7.06% for 30 years and 6.22 for 15 year. So it's about, it's, you know, 0.8% less, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you take a $200,000 home, which is not that unusual in this day and age, um, on a 30-year on a mortgage, the payment is $1,339 a month. Your total payments over that 30 years on your $200,000 house will be $482,000. So your $200,000 house actually costs you $482,000. Yes? That does not include tax, right? That does not include, no, well, the payment itself does not include tax. That is, 
think at 4% over the course of 25 years to get the value of your home less. Yep. So that does not include taxes and insurance because that's all variable based on the property. I just wanted to give a hard look at what the P&I P is, okay, principal and interest, okay? <laughs> so a $200,000 home, 30-year mortgage, average rates today will cost you $1,339 a month, and over that 30 years cost you $482,000. That same home on a 15-year mortgage at the average rates today cost you more on a monthly basis, $1,700 a month, but now your total payments are $308,000. You saved $172,000 by taking a shorter loan. Why am I giving you all this? Because it is really tempting to look at our budgets and take the lowest payment. That's, that's our mindset in America. You know, I have X dollars to work with, well, I can do all these extra things if I keep it down in a lower payment level, right? I have more monthly to work with, not realizing that in the long haul, we're costing ourselves $175,000. That's significant. I don't need to tell you that. Interest works against you. Um, so that, that's, that's for you guys, really. I really wanted to hit home the dangers of debt, okay? One other thing. Sorry, I'm not done with you teenagers. <laughs> Credit cards. When I went to college, the first day I got to campus down in Long Island, they had these kiosk-like things set up in the courtyard of the college where, where the, main, the main hub was, okay? And there were like four different credit card companies, and I'd never had a credit card. But, you know, I was thinking, oh, I don't have credit, there's no way. They don't care. They're going to issue a credit card if you don't have credit anyways. What they did was they started me with a $500 credit limit. Me being, you know, an 18-year-old college kid, I think I took it to about 460 bucks on the first month, right? <laughs> and so I get the next statement. My balance, my available credit bumped up to $1,000. I'd never made a payment. I'd never, you know, I had no credit. They bumped it up. So what do I do? Okay, I've got more money to spend, yeah. okay? I, I'm telling you this because this is where your minds go when you're young and not aware of all the things you're going to have to pay in life. So to also put this into perspective, credit cards often have a 0% introduction rate and then they crank them up, them up. The average credit card interest rate, does anybody care to take a guess what the average credit card interest rate in America is? 23.55%. Anybody care to guess what the average per person, mind you, this includes children, this is just per person in the U.S., the average credit card debt per person in the U.S., anybody? $5,897, $5, so $5,900. All right, here, here's the next one. So a, a $5,900 credit card at a 23.55% rate, what's the minimum monthly payment? Two seconds. 20 bucks. 30 seconds. <laughs> no, no, you wish. <laughs> now, it, it's actually... <laughs> The, the minimum payment's actually $176.91. Now, a few years ago, the government cracked down on credit cards and said, well, you actually, because prior to the government cracking down on them a little bit, they were allowed to just 
do the interest, so basically they were just paying interest each month, and they would have that credit card forever, forever, literally forever if they made minimum payments. Okay, the balance would never go down, they'd just be paying interest every month. So a few years ago, the government said, well, that's not good. I think this is one of the few good things the government's done recently. Um, and they said there has to be an end line for when this stuff can be paid off. And so does anybody know what the end line, how long it takes to pay? If you pay your minimum balance each month, 12 years. Yeah, you're married to me. That's not fair. <laughs> okay. It is 12 years. If you look at credit card statements now, it says that every credit card statement will say, if you pay the minimum, in 12 years, you'll be paid off and you, you will have paid this much money. So you get a credit card, rack up $5,900 in debt at the average interest rate. Your payment's going to be $176 a month. It's going to take you 12 years to pay off, and you're going to have paid a total of $8,800 on a $5,900 debt. Okay, so you're, again, interest works against you. So, okay, that's the, the doom and gloom ugly part, okay? Let's get to savings. So that was debt. Now we're going to talk about saving a little bit. I'm not going to, I think we can all understand the wisdom behind saving money and preparing for the future, right? I talked about it last week with the ants and, and storing up for, for bad times. Um, it is wise to save. Proverbs 21.20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. The foolish man spends everything that comes in, like I just talked about. The wise man will set some aside and save. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. You don't have to save a ton every single month. You don't have to, you know, kill yourselves but saving diligently is absolutely wisdom. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, go to the ants. Again, the ants. They always reference the ants. <laughs> go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. And I also, I talked to you last week about Joseph, but I think what's really you know, as a financial planner, one of the things that really strikes me about Joseph, other than, you know, rising to be the steward of three different locations as he was a slave, is the overall picture of what he did once he was uh, Pharaoh's steward. So he planned for a famine that others didn't necessarily, that nobody else planned for. He planned for it. He knew, and, and if we think about, you know, since from 2008 to the beginning of last year, we've had nothing but up markets. But you're constantly having a conversation with people of, it's going to go south at some point. It's going to go south at some point. So this is great. Let's enjoy it. But it's going to go south at some point. Joseph planned for that. He knew it was coming. So he saved a portion of the income each year, i.e. the grain. He saved a portion of it each year in order to plan for the future. And that was a seven-year famine, right? So when we, you know, there's a general rule of thumb in planning. Andy knows this because we talked about it. General rule of planning, 
that you want to have in your reserves four to six months of savings if you can so that if something happens you lose your job you can't work you're disabled you have savings there to live on so it doesn't devastate your finances and you lose your home and all these other things joseph was doing that. that's not from us joseph was doing that thousands of years ago <laughs> that's just a good principle from you know maybe the best steward the financial steward ever um, so he saved that portion every year to weather the coming downturn. And then when the downturn came, he used that downturn to be an even better steward and increase Pharaoh's wealth, if you will. Remember, he, he um, yeah, I was going to say everything. People came and paid him, then they ran out of money, so they turned over his livestock to them. They ran out of that, they turned over their, their land and homes, so Pharaoh owned everything, and from all the wealth that he accumulated, he was, you know, he gave them the land to work and said, okay, I get 20% of whatever you bring in. He had an income stream for life, <laughs> you know, it's like the best annuity ever, right? <laughs> so, so it is wise to save, and there are many biblical principles to saving, okay? Uh, next, I'm going to get into investing a little bit. Now, again, as I have tried to handle every other topic about finances, I'm not going to go into deep specifics about types of investments and, you know, what stock I like. I, I don't, don't care. <laughs> okay, this is about um, the concepts. So as I was trying to put together this part of the talk tonight, I kept being drawn back to a piece that I've seen from Crown Financial. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, um, but Crown Financial puts together, put together a piece, and it's basically what to do and not to do. Where's your heart in investing, okay? So first, do not invest with the wrong heart attitude. What do we mean by that? Do not be greedy. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6.9 Ultimately, greed is a reflection of our discontentment with what God has provided us. We need to be content with what God gives us. And we can work to have more we can work longer hours, you know, try to find higher paying jobs. We can diligently save. We can do things to try to put ourselves into better financial positions. But ultimately, it all comes from God. And we need to be content with our station, our financial station in life, wherever God has us. Secondly, do not invest with pride. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17. I know a lot of people... <laughs> in my industry um, and, and beyond. We deal with finances all day, so I see a lot of people perpetually 
trying to have more and more and more and more. And there is a level of pride that permeates people in general. In a fallen world where our focus has left God and we don't understand that all things come from him, our own contentment, our own joy, we're to find joy in him, right? Our joy comes from the Lord, not from us or anything we do. People use money as a tool, as a tool really, to feel better about themselves. And we feel better about ourselves by flaunting, if you will, what we have. I want to be really careful with this because um, there are people that have plenty and they live well above the means that I can live with, okay? I don't think it's, I'm getting into opinion a little bit here. Um, You know, I know people that drive $150,000 cars and for them, it's not, it's nothing. Um, and I can't fathom that, but that same person I just mentioned is probably one of the most caring and generous guys I know. Um, so, you know, he lives far above a world that I live in, but he would break his back in half to help a friend or a brother. Um, that same guy's father, just <laughs> so you know, when that same vehicle I mentioned about my dad that he bought me, the beater, when I was living in New Jersey, it broke down. And it was, I think, like a $1,300 repair in 2001, which, goodness gracious, <laughs> I was making $10 an hour. <laughs> I had no savings. I would go down to the 7-Eleven that was like a block away on the weekends and get SpaghettiOs because that's all I could afford. Um and my car had to go in, so I was just thinking, this is going to be another credit card thing. This is all I can do. And my buddy couldn't take me to go pick up my car when it was repaired, so his dad picked me up. So he pulls up to my <laughs> junky little place I'm living in with a brand new S500, if you all know what that is. Um, it's a very, very expensive Mercedes. Um, so he pulled up to it, and as we're driving, he's driving me there to pick up my beater, he says, it's, it's all taken care of. Like, what? What's all taken care of? He's like, you're all set. You don't have to pay. Just here are your keys. Get your car. Go home. And I was like, what? And he's like, Michael, <laughs> I've been blessed with it. Um, I hope that at some point you are too. And if you are at that point, do for others. <laughs> and that's been you know, his principle forever. And it's, it's really a testimony to, you know, people that certainly have wealth, but are generous and grateful and, and do right with it. It's not a proud thing that they invest in. It's, it's a generous thing that they invest in. And it's, it's really a tribute. Okay, so keep going. Um, do not invest with ignorance. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 15, 22. So why am I giving you this one? There is ample insight available through the Bible, through church, through family, 
even online or with professional counsel on what might be a wise path to take with your finances. Again, I'm gonna go back to the first week and warn you, don't do it all alone. You're married, include your spouses. They have insights you do not have and it is really important to get their insights because I do this every day and I miss things that Carmela picks up or she views things from a different perspective in a way that I don't view them. And that's good counsel to have, okay? If you don't have a spouse, you know, if you have a good friend or a church leader or whatever, it's good to get other insight on how to handle certain things with finances. So seek wise, godly counsel and make decisions supported with research and godly wisdom. Finally, don't invest out of envy. Psalm 73.3 says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a, it's, that's a great psalm because he's talking about why do they have this and I don't? And that, that, that's most of the psalm until he turns his mind around and realizes that the wicked, that prosperity only lasts so long. And then they still have to stand before the throne of God and answer for that. Okay? So we have to be aware that if we are envious of what others have, we very likely may be envying somebody or something that is on a path we don't want to be going down. <laughs> so we really need to focus on God and how he has blessed us rather than how he seems to be blessing others. So what are some reasons to invest? First and foremost, to further God's work. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, Acts 4.34. God blesses whom he chooses to bless. Those who have more and can give, should give. That's just a biblical principle. If you have more, more is expected. But I also want to be really careful because I'm talking in terms of finances, but we all have gifts and talents that we can give from that aren't necessarily how deep are your pocketbook. Okay? So we need to be generous however we are able. Our finances, our time, if that's all we have to offer. Our knowledge, our physical strength. <laughs> I always think about when Ethan helped move us into our house and we had a king mattress and I'm going up the stairs. I'm on the upper side and Ethan's on the lower side. And I kid you not, I think he carried me and the mattress up the stairs. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, but the man, the man is so strong, but, you know, that's something he could give that I certainly do not have, okay? So physical strength, cooking, we all have certain things that we can give to others that we can be generous with, so please do. We invest to care for our family, okay? So the Bible talks about giving everything away. I don't think the principle is that we need to be St. Francis of Assisi and be paupers in order to get into heaven. I think the principle is where we have abundance, we need to abundantly give. 
But scripture also says if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, 1 Timothy 5.8. We do have a responsibility to care for our family. We care for each other. And if we've been given abundantly, then we can give abundantly after we've cared for our family. And that doesn't mean our family needs to go to, you know, the biggest, nicest trips five times a year. That's not what I mean by caring for the family. You can, you can care for your family without spending extravagantly on them. Okay? Finally, we invest to be free. When you have planned for the future... When you have planned properly, you then will have a freedom of time and money in your life to allow you to do things for the Lord. And that should be, that is, you know, certainly a good goal to have. If we choose to retire at some point, there are, there are question marks. I, I hear a lot of people say, is it biblical to retire? Not going to get into that. <laughs> But I will say, if at some point somebody's retiring, good for you. You have more time and money to give back to the Lord now. What a wonderful thing. Okay? Additionally, when you have planned and when you are content with what you have, you have one less worldly things to remove your attention from God. <laughs> there are so many things that distract us from him. And keeping our eyes on him, if at all possible, let's make sure money isn't one of them. Okay, so really quickly, because we are running low on time and I've put way too much down. Okay, how should we invest? I'm keeping this part really short because I'm not getting into investments. But how should we invest? Systematically, not speculatively. If we are buying an investment in order to get rich, you need to rethink your thinking. <laughs> okay. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever, gathers, who, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Scripture says a few times that, you know, the quick to prosper, the quick to find wealth, or the quickly seeking after wealth will stumble and fall. And it, there's wisdom in systematically saving and building wealth, not chasing so I, I throw in under there, don't chase trends, talking heads on the TV, don't chase whatever they're saying because it's usually too late anyways. Don't invest in things you can't understand, <laughs> okay? There are a lot of things out there that sound like the latest, greatest thing. If you don't understand it, don't buy it. Don't chase get-rich-quick ideas. And then the great glorifier in our society is driving through the middle of Syracuse and saying the mega million, and we all know this here, I'm just... It, Bears repeating, the Mega Millions jackpot is now $1.4 billion. Or the Powerball is now, you know, $580 million. It's like, no. <laughs> That's not going to bring you happiness and joy or anything good, okay? And then the other thing I love to do is flip through, flip through channels. I don't even have cable anymore, but when I used to flip through channels, there was always... Um, the grand tour or whatever of poker on TV. And literally, you just, you, people sitting there watching people play poker for hours. And these guys who are 
probably playing video games in their mom's basement, scraped together enough money to go to this tournament so in hopes of winning a million and a half bucks. <laughs> you know, it's, that's, not, that's not wise investing. Okay? Secondly, when investing, we need to do so honestly and without compromising important biblical values that I've already discussed. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenue with injustice. Proverbs 16.8. Now I'm really going to zip through the rest of this. Do not take needless risk. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. It is not wise to take significant risk because it will end poorly. That's Proverbs 27.12. The last section I had for you, um, what I call leaving a legacy. Proverbs 13.22 says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children. We know that Proverbs has a lot to say about finances. Um, and there's actually scripture in like Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all discussing how material inheritances should be administered, at least how they were administered in that time. So, well, it's, it's safe to say that these passages give indication that we can and possibly should leave money to our children. I don't think it's a mandated thing because not everybody can. However, there are things we can leave to our children even if we are not financially able to, okay? Number one, leave order to your kids or your spouse or whoever you leave behind. Leave order. What do I mean by that? As a parent, it's your role to, to leave a clear plan for a children's inheritance. Um, in First Kings, David was dying and um, Adonijah sees the throne. Bathsheba comes to David and says, you haven't picked the successor yet. What are you doing? Everything's in turmoil. And so he had to leave a succession plan in order for things to continue. So ultimately, you know, Solomon was, was the king, and that stabilized things. But when he left everything in confusion, when, when he did not address things, it was all confusion and chaos. He had to leave a clear plan as the leader of what was to be. Second, leave God's covenant to your children. Western culture has taught us independence. It's a notion that separates the value of children's values, children's inherent values from parents. We're all taught now to be independent. Well, those are your parents' beliefs. You should have your own. Don't let it be. God desires generations, okay? God told Abraham that he and his offspring, through their generations, should keep the covenant. We should be teaching our children the same. We want multi-generational faithfulness to God. Pass values through your example. Be a good steward with whatever you have. Your children, my children, observe how we walk, how we talk, not just what we say, but what we do. So leave a good example. Think about what family example you will leave for your kids that remind them of God. Um, when I was a kid, my whole family would get together for every holiday, and that was, you know, five aunts and uncles and 8,000 cousins and my parents and grandparents. We'd all gather at my, my parents' house. And there'd be, you know, 40, 50 people there, all family. And we'd have our meal, and we'd have all the good time. But once the meal wrapped up, my family would kind of sit around the table, or multiple tables, because there were a lot. 
And <laughs> my mom would always go to the living room. She had a whole stack of hymnals, and the whole family would sing hymns together. And those are things like I hated singing. And I did not want to sing. I hated it. <laughs> but those are things that stick with you that were left to me by my, my parents are still alive, obviously, but those are left to me and they're ingrained in me as, as an example of how my parents loved the Lord. Okay, so think about what things you're going to leave to your kids that are their inheritance that point them towards God. Not just what you say, but the things you do. Um, next, use wisdom in what you have to leave and how you leave it. If you do have material blessings, so in Genesis 49, Jacob, Israel, leaves a blessing, if you will, to his children. <laughs> so according to custom, Reuben is the oldest, should have had a double portion, and all the others should have had whatever they had. Um, Israel goes on to tell Reuben, you're getting nothing because you were unfaithful. He tells Simeon and Levi, numbers two and three, you're angry, violent men. And I'm also not leaving you anything. So Judah, the fourth, got the double portion. Why am I telling you this? There's a mindset that we have to leave everything to our children equally, and that's wonderful if that can happen. But we all know it's not wise to hand over money to the foolish. And we also know that we shouldn't play favorites. So you have to use wisdom and discretion in how you leave your legacy to your children so that they are not put in a worse position by having whatever they have and I have people all the time come to me and say I don't trust my child as far as I can throw him how can I control the finances from the grave and we set things up so that the kids basically get a stipend each month for a certain number of years so that they can't blow through that inheritance day one. And I have seen it. I saw a young man, 20-something years old. He actually, he had a, a stipend in that way. And there was a company that he went to that he basically said, if I sign over my stipend to you, how much money will you give me? He had a lifetime income, a couple, couple few thousand dollars a month lifetime income. He signed over his entire lifetime income. It's a 22-year-old to this company and got like $78,000. He's got nothing. <laughs> He's got absolutely nothing. He signed it over because he wanted that instant money. Our kids, we love them, but they're not us. And we have to be wise in how we leave things to them. And finally, I'm going to say this. The final point I'll say, you may or may not agree with me, but inheritance is our mission. I don't mean financial. As a parent, our mission is to instill biblical values, virtues, and work ethic in our children. That is our mission as parents, to point them back towards God and leave them with an understanding of who he is and what he wants from us. That's all I have for you tonight. So thank you all, and you are dismissed.